Let me just open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for our growing family. I thank you for this calling of Church at the Red Door. Lord, I, I thank you for the privilege of serving you alongside so many others. I just want to make you famous in this valley. Lord, we're so grateful. Lord, we ask that you would engage us this morning. Lord, your Holy Spirit would somehow bring these words, 2,000-year-old words, in some cases, 3,000-year-old words, ancient, eternal words, not like the grass, not like the flowers, Lord, but your word, this word, abiding forever. Lord, let it become part of us. Let it become part of the way we think about reality. Let it inform every decision that we make. Lord, let us encourage us, and I think it will this morning. Lord, just be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, first of all, I want to thank all of you that participated on our outreach on Tuesday night. For those of you who weren't there, we were at times wondering if we'd have 200 people. We had almost 700 people there at the outreach, and we, we it really is right. <clears throat> Certainly want to thank the McNats and Mar Marty and Barbara Jacobus and the, all the teams that really worked so hard to really ramp this thing up in three weeks. I'm believing, in fact, uh, Pastor Paul was at a, at a meeting with some of the pastors and one of the pastors of one of the sizable congregations came up and said, we heard you guys were involved in some golf thing, you know, what was that? And he, he told them and he said, well, we didn't have much time and sorry we didn't con contact. He said, we want to be part of that next year. And if that happens, you know, I think we'll be 12 or 1300 people next year, wouldn't surprise me. And um, it, was a, it was a great launch. It was our inaugural. And the guys and gal did a great job on stage. And Mark Wilson and Amy, I know, are here. Mark, uh, former champion of the classic here, you were, did such a beautiful job. And just want to thank you so much for being part of that. Yeah. <clears throat> As is the case with the PGA Tour, Mark hadn't played golf in weeks. And he's up, been to Chicago and snow and all that. And he comes down and shoots five under and gets Sunday off. Five under par. Shoot five under par and gets Sunday off, man. I, I, every time I see something like that, I said, Lord Jesus, thank you that I'm not out there beating my head up against that wall anymore. So uh, anyway, we, we love you guys. You ready to get going on this? We're going to keep moving through this uh, letter to the Ephesians, and I'm excited. I told you last week I was excited about it, and then I couldn't even get to the most exciting part, which is a problem that I have, but it's just a problem you have to bear with. So uh, we're going to get into some really, really deep thing, uh, stuff this morning, and I'll be honest with you, I, I, have, I woke up about four this morning, and I was kind of running this through my mind. What would this, what's this going to look like? How's this going to come together? And I don't really know. So we're, I'm, 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 as, I'm as anxious to see how this is going to come together as you are. Uh, we left off last week, if you'll remember, we talked about this spirit of unity that Paul was praying for, for the church, not only at Ephesus, but all the churches in Asia Minor and probably all the churches that existed during that time. Specifically, we call it the letter to the Ephesians, which Paul wrote. And he said, look, we want to preserve this spirit of unity in the bond of peace. 
And then I want to take us back a little bit, but before I do, somebody came up and told Laura, uh, my wife Laura, a unity joke that I am going to lead with because I thought it was hilarious. So there was a guy, you know, the proverbial guy on a de- deserted island. He was, he was on this nice cruise, and, and he got thrown overboard somehow, and he made his way, and they couldn't find him, and then that actually happened this week from the news, from what I understood. And they couldn't locate him, and then he was able to swim, and he came up to an, an island, and he was there, and then nobody, nobody came after him. So he, he set, started setting up shop after about a year, and then another year went by, and another year, and he started to kind of build some structures to make him feel like he had some kind of a home, some, something there. And uh, four years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years passes, and he's kind of created his own little village, and he's just living a life completely deserted nobody around nobody and then then one day he sees a he sees this little prop plane flying over the island and he has one flare left and he shoots it up and and the props kind of sputters and stops around and then comes down and lands and he runs out and gets him on the beach and they embrace and he said you've you've rescued me after 30 years and the guy says well come on get in my get in my plane and I'll take you and so he he started to wind back up and he made his way across the island flying over to to go on and he looked down and he goes my goodness what it looks like there's a lot of people down here he says no it's my own village and he said, well, what's that? And he said, well, you know, that's my own little tavern I built for myself. And what's that? It's a little basketball court I built for myself. And, you know, shoot coconuts through a little, through a little uh, deal there. And he made his way on through, and they kept flying over. He says, what's that? He goes, that's my church. He goes, that's beautiful. And they kept flying. They got just to the other end of the uh, island, and he looked down. He said, well, what's that? He goes, that's my church. And he said, well, I thought you already had a church. He said, well, no, 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 that's the church I used to go to. it's hard to keep unity in the body it's just hard to keep unity in the body you know what I mean so uh it's it's a church I used to go to so so we saw we saw Paul said look here here's the deal uh the Lord has done something spectacular the Lord and the mystery Paul called it if you'll remember hearken back to chapter three The mystery is that Jew and Gentile now are unified in Christ. He said that's the great mystery. That's something that nobody really saw coming. You could go back and you could kind of unpack the Old Testament in a particular way and you would see that that was, of course it was, but until it happened, I think Paul, the disciples, uh, they were... Uh, they were amazed that not only Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, you know, back then there were all these divisions socioeconomically and male-female and gender, ethnicity, all these, but now in Christ we're all made one. Ephesians chapter 3, 4 through 10, just to take you back, and I want you to get the context because we need to lay just this foundational idea. Paul speaks, he says in verse 4, he says, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Well, what is he talking about? Uh, There's a lot of mysteries about Jesus that have to be unpacked over time, but he's talking specifically about this one issue. He says, in other generations, it wasn't even made known to the sons of men. It's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, it's been the Holy Spirit that's given this revelation to be specific that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. He's trying to convince you guys are part of this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're part of this. Fellow partakers of the promise and Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the, now catch this, gift 
of God's grace. Again, he sees everything that he's received is a function of grace. Not because he'd climbed a, a religious ladder, but it's just part of something that had been given him. He calls it a gift. And he said, it was given to me according to the working of his power to me. And then he's going to qualify himself. Are you ready? The very least of all the saints. It's amazing the progression we see in Paul, in some of the early letters, he's always defending himself. He says, I'm not, one of the, I'm not the least of the apostles. He, he defends himself. And then as he goes along and the Lord continues the sanctifying work in him, you see an increasing recognition. I'm the least of the saints. He said, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now catch, and to bring to light what is the administration I'm just going to, I'm going to take this mystery and make it evident. He said, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that, are you ready? The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, that's us, not the building, the people, to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. In other words, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to wave it in the face of all the demonic principalities that fell in this little insurrection that happened way back when. We don't know exactly the timing of how it all, how it all worked out, but, but followed that one angel, that created being himself and his little anarchy, kind of his little, his little rise to power, his attempt at a coup. And he says, we're going to wave this in the face. Why? Because Satan is a divider by his nature. Satan, at his core, he twists things. Satan is the what? Accuser of the brethren. He likes to accuse people. He likes to divide people, and that's the essence. And now here is the mystery of the gospel bringing us together. It's powerful thought if you think about it. Uh, Max Lucado in one of his commentaries, listen to the language. He actually talks about Satan a little bit, and he talks about terrorism because, you know, terrorism is a big part of our world today. I mean, we live in a post-9-11 world, don't we? Listen to what he says. He says, the images are, are startling. Bodies strewn on Parisian streets, blood stains on restaurant floors, a pregnant woman dangling from a second-story window. Reminded yet again that we live, in a, we live in a violent world. Every news program asks the same question of terrorism experts. What can be done? What's the source of such evil? How long before we see more attacks? We, act, we ask that every day in America. And if you travel and fly and internationally or otherwise, you're always confronted with this constant feel of maybe you don't feel that way. I don't necessarily feel that reach in here in the Coachella Valley, but there are many parts that it happens. You know, Oklahoma happens and then this happens and that happens and it just, it just keeps happening said, will it ever end? He said, experts trace the source of violence to a violent ideologue. They point their fingers maybe at radicalized Muslims. And while their answers have merit, we'd make a mistake not to even go further. Here's what the Bible says about terrorism. And then he quotes where we will get in this series at some point, I hope, Ephesians chapter 6. Our, you know, our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We're not battling each other, not in the kingdom realm. We're battling against these forces. And, and something happened on the cross, and it's like this mystery unpacked, and all Satan's activities to divide and conquer have been now reunified in Christ. We're brought together. 
The Bible presents a real and present foe of our faith. His name is Satan. Some call him the devil. Others call him Beelzebul or Belial or the obstructor, the tempter, the evil one, the accuser, the prince of demons, the ruler of this world, or the prince of the power of the air. Whatever name you choose, he's an enemy and he is real. If I were the devil... Max talking, I'd blame terrorism on a broken political system, a disenchanted people group, uh, the wicked witch of the West. I'd want you to feel attacked by an indefinable, nebulous force. After all, if you can't diagnose the source of your ills, how can you treat them? If I were the devil, I'd keep my name out of it. But God doesn't let the devil get away with this and tells us the, the name. The, the very Greek word for devil, devil is diabolos. And it shares uh, another Greek form uh, of a word that actually means to split, a splitter. The devil is a splitter, a divider, a wedge driver. He divided Adam and Eve from God in the garden and has every intent of doing the same to you. Blame all unrest on him. Don't fault the plunging economy or raging suicide bomber for this bloodshed. They are simply tools in Satan's toolkit. He's not the cute, harmless character of the cartoons. He's not an imaginary, dark counterpart to the Easter Bunny. He's invisible, yet forceful, fallen angel called Lucifer, who desired the high place only God could occupy. He rebelled and disobeyed and wants you and me to do the exact same thing. The devil, your enemy, goes about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's what Peter said. If you read uh, in 1 Chronicles 21, he incited David to take a census. Uh, if you think about uh, what he did with Peter, he requested that he could sift Peter. The devil persuaded Judas Iscariot to turn against Jesus. Think about it. The woman, Satan, who's kept bound for 18 long years, the woman with the issue of blood, 18 long years. Look at Satan's activities. He's blinded the minds of those who don't believe. And we know that from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And that's why we learn from that very chapter. We don't walk according to what we see. We walk according to what we cannot see. He has one objective, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Those are Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10. He lied in the Garden of Eden. He lies to unbelievers, blinds their minds. He's always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. Every battle ultimately is a spiritual battle. Every conflict is a contest with Satan and his forces. Paul urged us to stand against the wiles of the devil. We'll get to that in Ephesians 6. Interestingly, the Greek word he used for wiles is methodia, which we get our English word method. Satan is not passive or fair. He's active and deceptive. He has designs and strategies. He has a method, if you will. Consequently, we need a strategy. And for that reason, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. And I think that's an exact, that's a, that's a perfect kind of summation of Satan's activities in the world. And again, we'll get more to this, and we'll look into some of his activities as we get later into this study. Now, back to this Back to our text, if you will. I'm going to take you on an Old Testament ride that I think might be really exciting, very engaging, and take something that was written a thousand years before the time of Jesus, actually given credit to this psalm to King David. 
But let's back to the text real quick, and let me just read where we are in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, verse 7, Ephesians 4, verse 7, and we'll finish out these last three verses. But to each one of us is given, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So now just set the stage. We saw this earlier, gifting. This is what we're going to be getting into the next few weeks as we progress forward. What are the gifts? Whether according to Christ's measure. And he says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. Maybe your Bible says, led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself Also, he who ascended above all the heavens so that he might fill, what? All things. Now, what does this mean? Well, first of all, like like some difficult passages, this does not change the grander, larger meta-narrative at all. But there are different interpretive views of this particular reference. What Paul is doing is is he's going back into the Old Testament and he's taking what some theologians call the divine warrior psalms. We get that in Psalm 76, uh, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph wrote about 12 of the various psalms. And Asaph also talks about the divine warrior motif. God is not only divine, but clearly divine by nature, but is also a warrior, a conqueror. He's going to set all things right. Jesus is coming back. He's not coming back as a baby be in a manger. He's coming back as a divine warrior to set all things right. And as you've heard me say over the last few weeks, he's coming back for his people. That's you and me. I hope if you know Jesus and he's coming back for his stuff. That's the blessed hope. And he will set all things right. And he will not be in a manger. He's going to be, well, the picture, and it's clearly metaphor here, figurative language, but a sword will be proceeding forth from his mouth. That always a picture of the Word of God. And then you see this blazing fire and horse and all this kind of thing, all all this picture of grandeur as a king, well, as a divine king warrior, if you will. There are a lot of different takes on this. I'm going to give you a few of them, but there's some There's some things that run through this that, to me, I'm going to give you my take on this this morning, I think are thrilling to see. We're going to look now at Psalm 68. He references it here. So when he says, he ascended on high and he led a host of captives or captivity captive, what does that mean? What is this even about? Well, he draws it from this this psalm. Now, I'm going to read through it. I'm going to read through the whole psalm. Bear with me, if you will. And then we'll go back and we'll unpack it a little bit. Now, many of you maybe even heard a worship song like this. If you kind of had more of a up-tempo kind of a worship background, we've all got all kinds of worship backgrounds in here. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Okay, so you can get the picture. God is arising, again, not, as a, not in a manger, but he's arising as a divine warrior. Let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. Now, some of you, before we go on, some of you will always draw and say, well, you, you come to your Bible still today because you come and you just try to say this is a book of moral codes. And in some ways it is. 
But it's deeper than that. So when you're looking at this, you say, well, I thought we were supposed to pray for our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And now this looks like we're asking God to come out and wipe out our enemies. Is he talking about Iran or maybe a Russia or somebody that we might consider a national enemy? Is that who he's talking about? Is he talking about just, or, or is he, well, he was, yeah, there we talk of physical people, but we're, we don't apply it that way today. We don't apply. Our enemies are not physical people. What did we just learn? Our battle's not against people, flesh and blood, but principalities and spiritual forces. So if we want to draw understanding from these psalms, we've got to go back and say, well, we're not just talking about people. We're talking about spiritual forces. So when this is talking about people or nations or tribes, we think of it in terms of what? Satan and his forces that have already had all this waved in their face and all their kingdom is being brought down by Jesus' death on the cross. Now, listen as we go forward. He says, let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him. Now, catch this. Who rides through the deserts. What does that mean? We're going to come back to that. Whose name is the Lord and exult before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widow's. Is God in his holy habitation? God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, when was God marching through the wilderness? And Selah, that just means, in Hebrew, that just means like a pause. You just take, you try to take all that and then Selah, pause. The earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God. Okay, now wait a minute. Now we're getting maybe a more clear picture. God marching through the deserts, and of course they went, came out of Egypt and went through their baptism, and then where did they go? They went to Sinai, and the law was given at Sinai, and that's what he's referencing. But how did God go forth? Well, eventually he'd go forth in in an ark, wouldn't he? Not the Noah's ark, but the ark of the covenant his presence. You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. Your creatures settled in it. You provided in your goodness for the poor. The Lord gives the command. The the women who proclaim the good things are a great host. Kings of armies flee. They flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoil. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you're like the wings of a dove covered uh, with silver, and its pinions and glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings there, now it's saying God scattered kings in the wilderness. Where where was this? It was snowing in Salmon. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. Now, this may not make much sense to you, but the peak of the mountain, in fact, some of you were with me in Israel a month ago, and, uh, and you remember Mount Hermon. And from Mount Hermon, it, in Syria, in the, in the Lebanese area, the headwaters of the Jordan came down. And that's a much more glorious mountain than Mount Zion. Mount Zion, that's what he's saying. These are glorious mountains, but these aren't impressive. What's impressive, he's going to say, is Mount Zion. 
He said, Bashan. In fact, if you remember, as they traveled through the wilderness and God being their power and their, their God in the Ark of the Covenant, they overcame Og of what? Og of Bashan. That was a king that was literally defeated as God swept through the wilderness in the Ark of the Covenant. And he said, even though your mountains may look down on this mountain, it's Mount Zion that God's going to look to one day. Mount Zion. So the chariots of God's are myriads and thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as he was at Sinai. Now remember Sinai again in holiness. Now, here you go. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, why would Paul, writing a letter to the Ephesians, come back and draw on this divine warrior motif because the language here is the lead-in to this idea of gifts. Pastors and teachers and prophets and apostles, we'll get to that. But why would the lead-in be this issue of gifts? And why would he go back to this issue? And I think if you, as we put this together, it's going to explode in your heart and it's going to make you want to worship. It's going to make you want to go to Zion. It's going to make you want to be part of the conquering tribe. Well, there's a, there's a number of things that are happening here, and I'm just going to give you four things that I see. Number one, Sinai is mentioned, as I alluded to. Well, what happened at Sinai? Well, the children came, the, the Israelites who would become the Israelites came out of Egypt. They went through their baptism, and they went where? To, through the desert, and then they went to Mount Sinai. And that's where God gave them, through Moses, God gave them the law. God descended on the mountain, and that's what he's saying. When you descended, when you came down on Mount Sinai, a lot of this is like Mount Sinai. Your presence came close to us, and we were terrified. There was lightning, flashes of lightning, and all kinds of things going on. And Moses even told us not even come near the mountain, otherwise we'd die. We've been close to your presence. And Moses, in many ways, was a type of Christ. Well, what happened with that? The law came down, and immediately he told them to begin to build a tabernacle. And when they came out of Egypt, by the way, what does it say? I believe it's Exodus chapter 12, verse 36. They had plundered the Egyptians. They had all kinds of gifts that they hadn't worked for, and, that, and the Pharaoh was just trying to get them out. And not only did they came out, and it, it, they estimate maybe 2 million people came out. And if you read Exodus chapter 12, you'll also see, and there were probably a lot of Gentiles with them, even Egyptians who had been overwhelmed by this God, and they said, we're with you, we're going with you. Kind of the, the Ruth motif, your God will be my God, and Naomi, we, we, we like your God, and somehow they just came, and it, a great multitude came out. And they plundered the Egyptians, verse 36 says of Exodus chapter 12, they plundered them. So there was plunder. The law comes down, and what does Moses do? He comes down, and he gives them the law, and of course they failed. The law is a gift. Let me be clear. The law is a gift, but it, by the same token, it also kills us. And what happened when they brought the law down? 3,000 people died. Now, you're going to remember forward, when Pentecost comes, 3,000 people come alive. So when the law came, 3,000 people died. 2,000 years later, or 1,500 years later, when Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit's poured out. 3,000 people came alive. That's what happened. Peter preached his first sermon. Kind of cool, isn't it? Well, what you see here is you see a picture of Moses as a type of Jesus 
giving the law, and what happens? Immediately they begin to construct a tabernacle because that was part of the law. And they took their plunder, their gifts, if you will, and they began to build a, they began to build a, a tabernacle. And what's the tabernacle? Well, that was a place where God dwelled. So, first of all, you get the Mount Sinai motif. In my head, that's what I see. When I see this, I go, that's a Mount Sinai motif. That every, he's mentioning that, and there's ascending and descending, and there's gifts being given. I think that's pretty cool. There's also a picture. Some theologians believe that this was actually a Davidic conquest. David was kind of a forerunning of a Jesus type, if you will. In fact, Jesus came sitting on the throne of who? 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 David. And maybe, and David went out and he conquered, and then they would come back and they would bring either captives with them, and they would march them through the streets, probably by all, from what most theologians would believe, they would conquer, and then sometimes they would either bring back people who had been captives, that's some speculation, and they bring them out of captivity, and they also bring other captives. And that's what most places, it, they would, when a king would conquer, they would bring a defeated people, and they would be in, they would be in cuffs or uh, we would say cuffs, they would be in chains and they'd be brought through the streets and everybody would be cheering radically because their foes had been defeated. And it's pretty exciting. And so there's a good chance that there was a Davidic kind of a thing. De- De- Paul, David descending off Mount Zion, conquering, and then ascending back to Mount Zion. A kind of an interesting picture there as well. Three, we also get this God riding through the desert in the ark. And as I alluded to you a minute ago, what happens? Through the presence of the ark of the covenant, God himself is now ascending up to Mount Zion. He descended. He took shape in the, in the ark for a while. He didn't just live there. He's, he's omnipresent. But his, some of his power was seen in the ark. And then he ascends to Mount Zion. And then he goes conquering too through the ark, as we saw with Og of Bashan. And that's what you get a picture of here too. But, you know, the most important part is Paul's application to this. Why would he say that Jesus descended, and then he talks about hell. Now, I need to give you just a quick take on this. There there are some that speculate that Jesus descended, and we know even from 1 Peter as well, it talks about him descending to make a proclamation to the spirits that are now in prison. We get that picture. We know that Jesus told the thief on the cross that today you will be with me in paradise. Now, some speculate that Jesus had to go down and actually pay in some way uh, like a continued suffering. I think that's just wrong. I don't think that's biblical. I, I can't support that view at all. I think Jesus went down and made proclamation, but I don't think he, he when he said it's finished, it was all paid, and all the forces of demonic, all the demonic forces were completely satisfied, were vanquished on the cross. Okay, let me be clear. But he did descend in this place called Sheol or uh, you know, it, it's a place of the depart, spirits of the departed righteous and unrighteous. And then some speculate that when he died and he went down, he brought with him those who had been in Abraham's bosom or paradise, those righteous men and women who now couldn't be in the presence of God because the sacrifice hadn't been made. And maybe those were the captives that were being ushered up as he ascended back into heaven. Because we know from the Bible that at various points they saw other people that were resurrected. Are you following me? I'm not so sure that's the best view of this either. I'm not dogmatic on this point, but I think the, the majority of theological consensus would be, no, these captives were Satan himself. So when Jesus descended, not only to earth, 
Some would say he just descended to earth and went back and ascended to heaven. That's true. But now Paul takes it another level. When he descended, he actually is taking this host of the demonic forces captive and parading them through Zion, and it's where it happened on the cross. And then he, as, he, as he ascends, he, he's like waving it in the face of all these foes. If you want to think about literal demonic or maybe even you can view this as just death, sin, and Hades in general. Jesus came down and he is, he's taking these captives captive. In fact, in Revelation, there's a place where death and Hades are thrown into this eternal fire and they're destroyed forever. Jesus has set this in motion and he has conquered. He's come back as a conquering king. He's been out ravaging the forces, but not flesh and blood, folks. He ravaged the forces of the demonic principalities that were set to divide the world forever, and he wiped them out, and he ascends back into heaven, making a public spectacle of all these forces that would in some way set themselves up against God himself. Is that not a powerful picture? I mean, that grabs me. Man, does that grab me. Here's Jesus leading, ascending into heaven, taking captivity captive. Taking captivity captive. Death, sin, Hades, the actual demonic forces. And maybe even if your view might be that even some people came out of Sheol and, and they were actually raised with him and, and, and went to heaven with him. And they were captives and now they've been released. All those, I, I don't have a problem with any of those views. I, th- I kind of embrace all of them in this, in this motif. But there's something even cooler here that I don't want us to miss. Something happened when the law was given. There, there's a lot of support rabbinically, and again, not biblically. And so, again, I'm, I'm not, I can't be dogmatic on this, but many Jewish rabbis believe that the law was given on what we would call Pentecost. Now, Pentecost wasn't set up yet because the law hadn't been given. But on the very day of Pentecost, in advance of the Pentecost, was the law was given. So when they traveled from Sinai, many of the rabbis believed that the law was actually given on Pentecost. And the law for them still, many Jews who don't see the gift of Christ still see the law as a gift, but they don't see that it kills them. Paul says the law is a ministry of death. It's a ministry of condemnation. I find it interesting if it's true, and I, have, I tend to think that it probably happened on that exact day. They came marching out of Egypt. They went through, and they rode through the wilderness and then they go to Sinai and they get the law, it was probably on Pentecost before Pentecost is even established. The law is given, and immediately what did they do with the law? Well, they began to build a sanctuary. If you go to Exodus chapter 25, let me read. Then Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him, and you shall raise my contribution. Now, what are they getting? Well, the blood had been applied where? In Egypt. That's what we call Passover, Exodus chapter 12. The blood had been applied to the doors, and what happened once the blood was applied? They plundered, they plundered Satan, and they gave him all their stuff, and they came out with the great, how are they going to take a contribution? These people had been slaves for 430 years. Where are they going to get anything to build this tabernacle? It came out of the plundering of 
Pharaoh, which was a type of Satan. And it says, and, and this is the contribution you should raise from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices, anointing oil, fragrant incense, onyx stones, setting of stones for the ephod and for the breastplate. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I'm going to show you is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furniture. And thus you shall construct it. Where are they going to get this stuff? They were slaves. They had nothing until that blood was put on that door. Now, was that, was that a defeat? Was the cross a defeat? And as a prefigure, was that a defeat or was that the greatest of all conquering? And once that conquering happened, what happened? They plundered his house. They had gifts galore. And what did they do with those gifts? They built a sanctuary. Now let's fast forward 1,500 years. Here's the time of Jesus. Jesus is crucified on Passover. We've talked about that. That knife went to the throat of those lambs at the exact moment Jesus is being pierced through for our transgressions. At the exact moment. Three days later, the Feast of First Fruits, Jesus comes up out of the ground. The very day they are waving the sheaves, the Levitical 23 sheaves. It's called a wave offering. They're waving the sheaves, maybe something similar to these plants here. And they were waving a picture of God's going to bring in the full harvest in another almost two months. And they're waving the sheaves. They're waving the sheaves. Something's come. These are the first things out of the ground. Do you think that's by chance that Jesus just happened to come up out of the ground on that very same day? And then Jesus here in Acts chapter 1, he says, Gather them together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father. For what he had promised, which he said, you heard for from me, for John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Where do we get the gifts in the church? The Holy Spirit. Where, do, you realize, do you have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you? If you don't, it's as simple as something you can do today. You can come right down here. You can pray. You can go back. We can go back in a prayer room in the back. You can just pray it right here as we're praying. You don't know Jesus? You can just say, Jesus, come live in me. I'm following you. Forgive me of my sins. We're going to baptize people tomorrow night. We're going to baptize four or five people. Maybe, maybe we'll have another five that will come today. I don't know. We're going to baptize them. We're going to lay my hands on them. Pastor Paul will lay our hands on them and pray that they be filled with the Holy Spirit. And with the filling of the Holy Spirit, oh, it will come a new sense, a voice in their mind, something that they can understand and be guided by, not by just moral codes. That's religion. A voice that guides them into their future and their understanding. And they'll receive gifts. Some will have the gift of generosity. Some will have the gift maybe of preaching or teaching. Some will have a gift of hospitality. There are all kinds of gifts. We'll get into that. But it's going to be poured out. He said, go wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. You could say, go wait because I'm going to pour out my gifts on you. I'm going to ascend and I'm going to lead this captive's cap. All this captivity, I'm going to lead them up and of this procession of that, that they've been conquered. And then I'm going to pour out gifts. All the booty that we've taken in this plunder, whether it be David or, or whoever, I mean, whatever the picture is for this uh, Psalm 68, all the plunder we're going to do and we're going to receive the plunder from our enemies and we're going to turn around and we're going to distribute it to you. 
Can you see this? So on the exact day that the law was given, 50 days later, Pentecost, 50 meaning Penta, they're there and Peter preaches. But before he preached, something happened. See, he couldn't have preached before he did that. But some gift had been poured out on him. He was the guy denying Jesus. He was the guy that was cowering before the slave girl. He was the the guy that denied Jesus three different times, even before the cock would crow. But the gifts then were poured out, and he stands up, and he preached a sermon, and 3,000 people got saved. Now, where did that come from? That was a gift from the conquering king who had ascended and then gave gifts to men, that being Peter. Do you think it's by chance that it was done on the exact day of Pentecost, which happened on Mount Sinai a number of years earlier? I don't think so. I think it's a beautiful picture. So when we complete this prophecy of this divine warrior, he ascends and receives gifts, but for what purpose? Well, the law was given so that they could, what, take the plunder from the... and, and. What? Build a sanctuary. And they did. They built a tabernacle. David would come back and he would begin to collect the stuff. He didn't build the tabernacle. Solomon did, but he began to collect all that was necessary. If you read the Bible, collect all that was necessary, all these gifts from all these conquerings to build the the temple. But then all of a sudden, the Bible in the New Testament says, no, 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 no. You're the temple of God. You're the tabernacle. So why do we receive gifts? Because we're going to build a tabernacle too. It's called the church. First Peter 2 says what? You're a, a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation being built into a dwelling place for God in the spirit. Why do you have gifts? So that you can build a temple. And the temple's not a building. It's not a tent wandering in the desert. No, 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 no. The temple is here where God dwells among his people. The ecclesia. Now, is that powerful to you or what? If I go back, in fact, now that Satan's been plundered, he's been disarmed, he's been humiliated, he's been taken captive, his cohorts and all the demonic have been drugged through the streets in this procession. I think that's what Ephesians 3 means. He's forever vanquished. And then I think about Colossians 2. Listen to the language. Let's start here in 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees that were against us. Now catch this. The law, it was hostile to us. That's what we've learned. It's been taken out of the way. It's been nailed to the cross. Now catch. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. See, Jesus' death on the cross was a public humiliation for Satan. Satan thought he had won the battle. But it turned to be his greatest defeat. Now notice, they were waving the sheaves on the Feast of First Fruits, but 50 days later on Pentecost, now catch this, this is the beauty, this is the, this is the finish, this is the culmination of the story. Here they are on Pentecost. You've got all these religious Jews and all these, and they are, they are fulfilling the law of Leviticus 23. And what did God told them to do? He says, I want you to take two loaves of bread. And I want you now, now don't wave these. That happened. Jesus came up out of the ground. But now I want you to take two loaves of bread, and I want you to wave these loaves of bread 
So here's religious Jews on Pentecost waving these two loaves of bread in triumph. They're thanking God for the harvest, but what are we? I see that to me that's, what are we? Jesus was the bread of life. He said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. And now what happens? We need to become bread for the world. It's Jesus in us. To me, those two loaves are representative. This is just me, but those two loaves are representative of what? Jew and Gentile. And they're waving him together. And here's Pentecost, and it comes down and explodes. And now all these, these Jews have gifts, and then they go on, and then Jews and Gentiles, and here we have this whole unified picture. On the exact same day. You think that's by chance? I don't think so. So what do we do with all this? Well, we worship. Are you on the road to Zion? I'm going to ask you that question. Do you realize that death has been conquered? Are you going to be taken captive? That's what the Bible uses that language all the time. Uh, Peter talks about that. They've been taken captive by Satan. Are you taken captive? Are you going to be part of the procession? No. I want you to be released from that. I want you to be, part, be, be one of the loaves. Be part of the things that are celebrated. Be part of the things that have come up out of the ground. If he's been raised, we've been raised. See, that's the picture. I want to be with the conquering king. I don't want to be in the procession of the captives. I want to be with the conquering king. It's as simple as beginning your journey with Jesus, and that can happen today. Simple as that. So I know we played this last week, but I hope this even has more meaning for you. This final worship song, all right? And I know it's a little, you know, I don't have shoes on, and you might think this is... But let me tell you something. There was something so meaningful that this was our first song we ever played when we launched church at the Red Door, and people were kind of not knowing what was going on. What kind of church is this going to be? But listen to the words of this thing. Death has been conquered. We're... we're, we're See, Jesus ascended. Do you realize you're going to ascend one day into his presence? Is this good news? Come on, Ranch, give me an amen. Amen. I mean, a good African-American. I love my friend, Ranch. I mean, I'm still preaching to white people, you know. I mean, I need some good amens. I mean, that's too good. This is just too good. Thank you, my brother. So... So let's worship. Just listen to the words, and then I'll come back and close this in prayer.